The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We have been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, as most of you know, and this morning we find ourselves in Acts 5, 12 through 42. And before we dig in this morning, let's pray. Um, Lord, as we've just sung, the only way we can even come to you is if we are in Christ, Lord. It is not the labor of our hands, Lord. It's no effort that we can make that could ever make us right with you. It is Christ and Him alone. And so we rest in Him this morning. We hide ourselves in Him this morning, Lord. And we are so grateful that we have a God in heaven who is mighty to save. And Lord, we pray that as we take a look at Acts chapter 5 this morning, that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see everything in this passage that you want us to see. Lord, give us insight. Give us understanding. Lord, make these things clear to us, Lord. And may they have the effect on our lives that you desire them to have. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing that seems rather undeniable about the church in America is that it's in a state of decline. Many of you may have seen the news stories just a few months ago that for the first time in recorded history, less than 50% of adults in America report being members of a church, according to Gallup. And as you can see on this chart here, membership hovered for a very long time, around 70%. But beginning in 2005 or so, we began to see a very steep decline with the result that in 2020, only 47% of adults in America reported being members of a church. And of course, you know, for most of us, this just confirms what we already knew to be true anyway, that Christianity is declining in a very significant way, at least in our country. And the natural question to ask is why, right? What's causing this decline? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's probably not that we don't have enough resources, right? Uh, America is the most prosperous nation on the planet, and the American church has enormous wealth, enormous financial resources, Also, in addition to having those financial resources, we have a staggering array array of Bible-related resources. I mean, we have 10 times as many resources to help us read and understand the Bible at our fingertips than previous generations could even dream of. So it's not that we don't have enough resources. In addition, the reason for Christianity's decline in America isn't that we don't have enough talented leaders or leadership strategies. 
right? There's undoubtedly way more focus on mission statements and vision statements and strategic planning and other elements of organizational leadership than there's ever been in the church. I mean, Christian leaders of previous generations probably, they didn't even know what a vision statement was, right? And now uh, we see that we have vision statements and all kinds of different things that the experts tell us are indispensable for church leadership. Things that we supposedly just have to have. And yet, despite all of this, despite all of the resources we have, despite an entire industry, really, that's dedicated to improving organizational leadership in the church, despite it all, we're still in a state of decline. Why is that? And the question becomes even more intriguing when we consider the early church, both during the era of the New Testament and for the first few centuries afterward. The early Christians didn't have anything close to the wealth that we now have. Most of them came from the lower classes of society, and neither did they have the biblical resources that we now have. I mean, for most of the first century, the Bible was still in the process of being written. And even after that, you know, most churches were lucky to have access to even one copy of the Scripture for their entire congregation. And then add to all of this the fact that they were severely persecuted. This meant, first of all, they couldn't own any church buildings, but instead they had to meet in homes and occasionally in public halls. And also, even worse, most of their best and brightest leaders were routinely hauled off and executed. So, I mean, imagine having to find a, a completely new elder team every year. <laughs> the persecution was severe. So they had all of this working against them. And yet, Against all odds, they grew. And they didn't just grow a little bit. No, they grew exponentially. Why was that? Like, what was their secret? So to sum it up, why did the early church see such explosive growth despite all of their disadvantages while the church in America today is in a state of decline despite all of our advantages. What was it about those early Christians that enabled them to be so effective in reaching their society with the gospel? That's the question we're going to seek to answer as we work our way through our main passage of Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now, as we can observe right at the outset here, one thing these early Christians had going for them was credibility. That was one factor that contributed to their growth and was a very important factor. We saw last week in the previous passage that God made sure that hypocrisy in the church was dealt with in a very decisive way, we might say. Ananias and Sapphira, you may recall, were actually struck dead for lying about what they were giving. And God did that because he knew how important it was for the church, especially at this early stage, to be pure and to be free from hypocrisy. So now, look what's recorded right after that in verses 12 through 14 of our main passage. 
Acts 5, 12 through 14. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, wonder why, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, here it is, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So, even though a lot of people were understandably a little standoffish uh, because of the severe judgment that had just come down on Ananias and Sapphira, it still says in verse 14 that more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Does that surprise you at all? Even after two people were struck dead, in the middle of a church service, no less, believers were added to the Lord more than ever, it says. Multitudes of both men and women. Not quite what you'd expect, perhaps. Yet I don't believe this growth is accidental or a mere coincidence. There's a clear connection between hypocrisy being dealt with in the previous passage and the growth of the church in this passage. And we see that connection confirmed in verse 13, where it records that even the people who didn't join the early Christians still, what does it say? Held them in high esteem. So the early church had a credibility that unfortunately the church in America just doesn't have. They had a moral credibility even in the eyes of those who were outside the church. And I'm convinced that the reason that that we in America don't really have much credibility is because most churches aren't faithful uh, to practice church membership or the church discipline that naturally goes along with a healthy, functioning system of church membership. We talked a lot about that last week, so I won't explain everything again this morning, but if you do want to know more about church membership and discipline, uh, feel free to go online and listen to last week's sermon. And don't worry, church discipline doesn't involve anybody getting struck dead, all right? So the fact is that despite the crucial role of membership and discipline, in preserving the church's credibility, most churches and church leaders just aren't that interested, to be honest. You know, I've yet to see any books come out entitled Church Discipline, (laughs) The Secret to Rapid Church Growth, (laughs) or maybe How to Increase the Size of Your Church by Dealing with Sin. (laughs) For some reason, I just haven't seen any titles like that. Even in the midst of all the books written about church growth, none of them even come close to approaching things from that perspective. Um, They just talk about slick marketing techniques and clever innovations and things like that. And maybe, maybe that's why the church in America is experiencing the decline It's experiencing. Maybe if we paid a little more attention to making sure our lives are 
consistent with our message, then there would be more people who were inclined to listen to that message. Here in Acts 5, the early Christians possessed a credibility that no one could deny. The people held them in high esteem, it says. And that was undoubtedly one very important factor that contributed to their growth. And yet, there was more. A lot more. As we look at the passage, we see another factor that contributed to the growth of the church, which was miraculous healings and deliverances. Look with me again at verse 12 and then at verses 15 and 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So people were being healed left and right. And, as is always the case in the book of Acts, these healings meant something. Verse 12 refers to them as signs. As you know, the purpose of a sign is to point to something. Think of an exit sign on a highway. The exit sign itself isn't the exit, but rather points to the exit, right? The sign points beyond itself to something else. And it's the same with these miracles. These miracles were signs that pointed to the truth of the message that the apostles were proclaiming. Yet there was something even beyond these miracles that caused the early church to grow. Uh, everything we've discussed so far was helpful for the church's growth, but there's still something else that I believe was decisive. And it's going to become clear what that was as we continue going through the chapter. In the rest of the chapter, we see the early Christians, and specifically the apostles, facing more opposition from the church or from the Jewish leaders. Now, we saw them facing opposition for the first time back in chapter 4, and now we f see them facing a lot more opposition. And that opposition comes to them in three waves, if you will. And picture a series of three large ocean waves that are crashing down over the apostles. And yet, through it all, the apostles were undeterred in their witness. That's what's most notable to me. And it kind of reminds me of a trick candle. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen trick candles at your birthday parties, things like that. You light the candle and then the person blows it out. But what happens? It lights right back up, right? So maybe they blow it out again and yet again, it lights up. And that's what we see with the apostles here. Like, no matter what the authorities did to them, the apostles were undeterred and kept right on preaching about Jesus. And as we're going to see, something was motivating them to do that. I'm sure they wanted to give up sometimes. But something motivated them to keep speaking about Jesus. 
what was it? Well, let's find out. Look first at Acts 5, 17-21. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, the Jewish leaders put the apostles in prison, but during the night, an angel opens the prison doors and lets them out. And I believe one reason, not the primary reason, but one reason that God brings this about is to, to sort of mess with uh, the Jewish leaders a little bit on a couple of different levels. Because not only does God spring the apostles out of jail, but he uses an angel to do it. And you may recall from a few weeks ago, and it's actually stated right here in the text, that most of the Jewish leaders were members of the, the party of the Sadducees, right? And the thing about the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in miracles or angels. So notice, it says that they're of the party of the Sadducees, and then who does it say that God uses to get the apostles out of jail? An angel. So I guess the joke's on them, because God shows that indeed angels do exist, and he uses them to spring the apostles. So you kind of have to appreciate the humor there. And of course, God did this ultimately, not just to pull a fast one on the Sadducees, but even more to encourage the apostles. He wanted them to know that he is more than able to deliver them at any time and in any situation. And looking at the text, what did the apostles do as soon as they got out of jail? Well, they kept on preaching, of course, right? They marched right back to the temple at daybreak and picked up where they had left off the day before. You know, I imagine they, they found their place in their notes and they figured out what PowerPoint slide they had left off, off on and they just kept going. They kept preaching their sermon. What do you think was motivating them to do that? Well, let's read on. Look at the next portion of the passage, the, the next wave of opposition, if you will, in verses 21 through 32. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So despite the apostles' miraculous escape from prison, the Jewish leaders are still determined to put a stop to their preaching. And it's interesting to observe that in his accusations, the high priest can't even bring himself to mention the name of Jesus. He simply says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and then says that you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Perhaps the high priest's reluctance to speak Jesus' name is an indication that he knew that he was guilty. (laughs) Contrary to his assertion, he knew that Jesus' blood really was on his hands. And in fact, it's actually the very thing he had asked for originally, right? Back in Matthew 27, 25, he and the rest of the people who had demanded that Jesus be crucified, they said, his blood be on us and upon our children. And so it was, as Peter's preaching has brought to everyone's attention. Yet even after being blasted by the high priest in this way, Peter doesn't give an inch. He and the rest of the apostles respond to the high priest with remarkable boldness. They plainly state in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And this is in line with several other verses in the Bible as well. The Bible consistently teaches that Christians should be good citizens, model citizens even, until the governing authorities mandate something that conflicts with what God says. And when that happens, we only have one choice. We must obey God rather than men. So if the government tells us to stop preaching the gospel, well, I'm sorry. (laughs) We must obey God rather than men. Or, if the government tells us as a church to to stop gathering on Sundays for whatever reason, even if it's related to COVID, well, we assess the situation and then we do what we believe God would have us do. Obedience to God always trumps obedience to any earthly authority. And just in case the Jewish leaders missed the point, Peter then shows them exactly what he's talking about by preaching the gospel to the Jewish leaders themselves. (laughs) So get this, they they tell him to stop preaching. So he keeps right on preaching the gospel to them. He tells them in verses 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus was crucified, hung on a tree, it says, 
so that God could give to his people forgiveness of sins. See, God can't just sweep our sins under the rug. He refuses to do that because he's holy and and he's righteous and he requires that sin receive its just judgment. And yet in his love, God the Father sent his own son Jesus to become a human being and to suffer the punishment, that, that, that judgment in our place. That is what happened on the cross. That's why the cross is so central to Christian teaching. It's central to everything. Jesus suffered God's judgment so that we wouldn't have to. And we know that Jesus came from God and taught what was true because he rose from the dead three days later. As Peter says in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. And then again in verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. And the way people can experience Jesus as their personal leader and savior is through, as Peter says, repentance. Instead of living their way, they need to repent and purpose to live God's way. And instead of trusting in themselves and their own moral efforts to get right with God, they need to repent and put their trust in Jesus to save them. And if you read the text closely, you can see that this repentance is actually a gift of God. Right? Not only is salvation itself the gift of God, but even the repentance through which we obtain salvation is itself a gift of God. It's something that God has to give people and put in people's hearts to do. And yet, we're still left with a nagging question of what was motivating Peter and the other apostles to continue preaching this message even in the face of such heavy opposition and at the risk of their lives. Well, we see the answer finally in verses 33 through 42, the third wave of opposition that's recorded. Look what it says. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee of the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus 
and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, even the revered teacher Gamaliel points out that if the Christian movement has its origin in man, it'll fail. But if it comes from God, nothing can stop it. And of course, knowing what we now know about the way the early church continued to experience such remarkable growth, well, the implication is clear. Christianity has its origin in God. Yet what's most remarkable in this passage is how the apostles respond to the harsh treatment they receive. They receive not only a stern rebuke from the Jewish leaders, but even a very public and shameful beating. And remember, this was an honor-shame culture. So the shame of this beating would have probably been more painful for them than even the lashings themselves. Yet amazingly, we read in verse 41 that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And that would be the name of Jesus, of course. And it's here, in this verse, that we finally discover the answer to our question of what was motivating them to continue preaching the gospel without being deterred. And also, why the early church grew the way it did. It all flows out of this. They believed that Jesus is supremely worthy. That's the main idea of this entire passage. The apostles were undeterred in their witness because they believed that Jesus is supremely worthy. This is what led them to keep preaching the gospel even to their dying breath, if you're familiar with church history, and why the early church experienced such remarkable growth. They believe Jesus is supremely worthy, worthy of our, our deepest devotion, worthy of our highest allegiance, worthy of it all, even our very lives. And it's this conviction that drove the early church to keep talking about Jesus regardless of what consequences they faced. And that's why the early church grew so much during those first few centuries. They didn't have money. They didn't have buildings. Heck, most of them didn't even have a complete copy of the Bible. And yet they grew because what they did have was a burning desire to tell the world about the one who had redeemed them from their sin. I mean, just look at how these apostles respond here. Even after receiving a public beating, 39 lashes with a whip, they left 
the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Think about that. Worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. In other words, they were suffering because they preached the name of Jesus and were therefore identified with him. And they regarded being identified with Jesus in that way as an unspeakable privilege. And guys, it is a privilege. Anytime we get to suffer to any degree for Jesus. I mean, he suffered so much for us. What a privilege it is to suffer for him. Again, Jesus is supremely worthy. That, that's the conviction behind it all. So why should we witness? Because Jesus is supremely worthy. Why should we sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? It's because Jesus is supremely worthy. Why should we remain faithful even as Christianity becomes increasingly unpopular in American society? Because Jesus is supremely worthy. He, he deserves our highest devotion. I love the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The point is pretty clear. Jesus died for us, and so it's our joy to live for him. I love how Paul says that the love of Christ controls us. <laughs> the NIV says compels us. Almost as if we're being forced to respond in this way. I mean, how else is there to respond to the one who loves us so dearly? What other conceivable response is there to, to the one who's given us his everything except to give him our everything. Guys, this is the kind of thinking that made the early church what it was and that drove them to turn the world upside down. To borrow language from Acts 17.6. And if we want to see something similar in our day, then we have to recover this kind of thinking and the depth of devotion and joy in sacrifice that go along with it. And just to be candid with you, if Christianity in America continues to be oriented around a bunch of motivational speakers, <laughs> peddling a message of three steps to a better life, <laughs> there's virtually no hope of making an impact. 
If it continues to be oriented around a bunch of leaders who are more captivated by the latest leadership strategies and marketing strategies, there's no hope, (laughs) virtually, for, for making an impact. And if Christianity in our country continues to rely on entertainment to draw people in, instead of on the glories and wonders of the gospel, then there's virtually no hope for impacting anybody in any significant way. But if we'll return to the mentality of the early church and be captivated once again by Jesus, then we'll just We'll be just as unstoppable as they were, I believe. It won't matter if churches in our country manage to retain their tax-exempt status. It won't matter if religious liberty is upheld in the courts. (laughs) It won't matter if we're allowed to own church buildings or not. (laughs) It won't matter if we become even more mocked and scorned than we are now. If we're captivated by Jesus to the extent that like these early Christians, we rejoice at the honor of suffering dishonor for his name, then we too can expect the world to be turned upside down. If there was ever a need for God to do a work of revival in the church. It's now.